You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. You know, through most of American history, the narrative around land cultivation or farming and African Americans is one of exploitation and oppression. Our next guest is devoted to changing that by offering up an alternative, which is presented in her book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. Dr. Monica White, a Detroit native, writes that post-agricultural society of the Jim Crow South left many black Southerners homeless, unemployed, and hungry in the same way that post-industrial societies of the northern United States have left many black factory workers homeless, unemployed, and hungry. What does that mean for people here in Detroit? And how are African-American communities here and around the country reclaiming agriculture as a space and place to practice freedom. I'm joined now by Dr. Monica White. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and welcome home to uh, Detroit. <laughs> it's always great to have native Detroiters back here. Yes, yeah, always to talk good to about be home. their lives and their work. <laughs> um, uh, so I want to start with the the quote that I just read mm-hmm. uh, from the book, and it reminds me of of. A theme, I guess, that I've been turning over in my mind for a little bit, and it may turn into a project at some point. Who knows? Okay. Uh, but I, I think part of what you're talking about here is an epilogue to the story of the Great Migration. This idea that African Americans left the South in large, large, large numbers, uh, mostly uh, the late 19th uh, century, early mm-hmm. 20th century for opportunity, uh, for a better life in the North. Sure. They found that life in some ways uh, for a, a period of time. But certainly in the last 50 years, what we've seen is the deterioration of that life. And mm-hmm. in some cases, right here in the city of Detroit, for instance, I think you can argue that what they're left with is not much different or better than what they or their ancestors left behind in the South? Mm -hmm. Well, I would argue that um, we didn't necessarily leave the South because of the work. It was because we were tired of the exploitation. It's the exploitation, right? right. And so this question of black labor, what happens when we're needed for agriculture? We're organized and galvanized in the South. What happens when we no longer needed as labor? Then we were invited to and and, and encouraged to come to the North in um, in Detroit and other places. And now that there's this redesign of the automobile industry, now what happens to black labor? And so my argument really is, how do we as black community folks um, um, respond to uh, these conditions using strategies of agriculture? Because we see in these economic conditions, these downtimes, that we've turned to agriculture as an opportunity to rebuild our communities, and today is no different. Hmm. Uh, talk about what inspired you to look into this history. Sure. So I'm, uh, my parents um, m- moved here. Um, they migrated from the south, and my dad always grew food, always had a, a garden. Um, my grandmother had a container garden uh, right on Stimson and uh, Woodward, and so wanted to really articulate the work of black folks in, in growing food from a frame that's different than sharecropping, tenant farming, and slavery. 
And so as a part of that conversation and a part of what was happening in Detroit in early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, 20, yeah. So uh, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, I was introduced to Baba Malik Yakini mm-hmm. and was really um, captivated by the commitment to growing food as a strategy of building community, but also organizing and creating sustainability um, and ac- increasing access to nutrient-rich food. Mm-hmm. And so looking at Detroit, you can't talk about agriculture and start in Detroit. You have to follow where we came from. And so following those lines, I went to the South and then just really wanted to understand how food has been a strategy for um, resistance and resilience since the end of slavery to um, to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Talk about the role that slavery plays in these common narratives around African-Americans and agriculture. So to me, what was really fascinating was the fact that we carried seeds in our hair. So the the slogan is with seeds in our hair, we migrate, we were brought here Mm. um, uh, as labor. And so that bringing rice was a part of the cultural connection that allowed us to grow up the food that we had been accustomed to, but it was also the demand for provision grounds and um, slave gardens. Um, the produce that we grew, we then shared in a market. And so that Sunday market was almost a free space in mm. some ways that during the, you know, during slavery, we would then gather together and celebrate break bread and what have you. And so I feel like there's this trajectory of food as a strategy historically for black folks and growing food production is also an important component that I think is often overlooked and as the negative frame is often what we elevate opposed to the ways that food has allows, allowed us to be resilient and to build and to, to provide for ourselves. This question of self-provisioning is something that is extremely important. Uh, Reverend Wendell Perry says you can free yourself when you can feed yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that to me was the story that I wanted to capture historically and offer as a lens to understand the work that we're doing today. It's an interesting duality really if, if you think about it. I mean there is this, this awful history of exploitation and and oppression around food uh, and and labor, as you as you point out, and and it has also served as as you point out a means to to to, to agency, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. To, to to control mm-hmm. for ourselves how things how things look. Uh, when you think about Detroit right now mm-hmm. and cities like Detroit, mm-hmm. do you feel as though the agency part of that has the upper hand? Uh, are we mm-hmm. are we at a place where that's the the dominant side of the story? For me, it will always be the dominant side of the story. Mm. So what happens to you is only one part. But what you make a de- when you make a decision to bring about a change socioeconomically and politically, that to me will always be the story. So there are going to be some political decisions, some economic decisions that um, tend to make us feel like we're losing the battle. But it is when people come together and recognize the collective force and the collective power of our work, our efforts, and our voices, that to me should be the story that we elevate and use as an example of what can happen when we pull our resources together. Mm. My guest is Dr. Monica White. She's an assistant professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also author of Freedom Farmers, uh, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. She's also a Detroit native. Uh, Dr. White, I want to talk to you about terms and terminology. Uh, Food justice is a term we use a lot. Your title at the University of Wisconsin is environmental justice is is, is is in that title. I would love to have you try to define what those terms mean. What would they look like if we had food justice, mm. if we had environmental justice? How would we how would we recognize those things? 
So I think what's interesting is to recognize the social components that um, demonstrate the diet-related illnesses and a lack of access of nutrient-rich food. So part we can argue that African Americans do suffer from environmental racism, and some would argue and uh, violence in terms of the re- access to um, the various kinds of food resources that we have uh, prominent in our communities. And so for me, the justice component is taking something that was intended to be used or that has manifested itself in ways that are violent and um, uh, uh, destructive and uh, exploitive and, pr- and oppressive, but using that as an instrument to organize, to mobilize, galvanize, and to lead toward freedom. So it could be food justice, it can be economic justice, it can be um, environmental justice, but it is looking at the collective strength of a community to stand up and to speak in response to the conditions and to organize and mobilize on its own behalf. Hmm. Uh, Dr. White, this this goes right to the heart of, I guess, what you're talking about, this idea that we have agency and the ability to address this issue ourselves and that that's not just uh, imperative now, but that has been part of our history from the beginning. Sure. So so I don't want to make it seem as though there's not a structural responsibility to making sure that folks have access to nutrient-rich food. So on the one hand, I love the conversation of resilience, but I do think that we have to push back against the conditions that leave certain communities more vulnerable than others, Mm -hmm. right? So I do think that there's a medical response to um, food access, food insecurity, and what have you. Jack Geiger, um, really historic um, physician, did incredible work in Mississippi where he was um, active in making sure that folks had that, that he was a, one of the leading um, members of the Community Health Project, where they talked about the importance of um, making sure that folks had access to food. And they even mentioned that they had more uh, prescriptions for healthy food than they did for medications at that time. And this mm-hmm. is in the late 60s. So there is a medical response and medical responsibility that is necessary. But in addition to, uh, you know, we, I think that we can talk about, we can ask the question, is access to nutrient-rich food a human right? If it is a human right, then whose responsibility is it? And while everybody's sort of deciding whose responsibility is, we see beautiful communities and incredible uh, inertia and, and organizing in ways to make sure that we, while we all are discussing what's happening, that our babies go to school with full bellies of nutrient-rich food that allow them to learn and to do, and, and, and in addition to concern for our seniors, the two most vulnerable communities that we have. It's a, it's a really big part of community in most places as well. I, I have some familiarity with this, with the neighborhood where I was born near uh, Livernois and Grand River, uh, where I operate a nonprofit in the house where my family lived. Uh, it's a literary arts and community center, but it's also uh, deeply rooted in what the issues are yeah. for people in that neighborhood. And food insecurity is you know, top of the list sure. for us in terms of what we see all the time with our, with our neighbors. Uh, there is something about uh, addressing that, that problem together, mm-hmm. which is what we've just started to think about how to do, um, that that builds community. I mean, yeah. there's no question that yeah. it becomes a stronger place because you're talking about how to make sure that everybody on the block has enough food all the time. You're sure. talking about uh, how to increase access right. to healthy food and fresh food. And you're talking about how uh, everybody can have their own sort of piece of it. Everyone uh, is not just necessarily taking from 
the food access, but contributing to it, right? sure. helping to helping to build it. Sure, sure. So I'm a sociologist. I'm always fascinated by what does food allow us to do? Food is the language of love. It is the language of concern. It is the language. Of, I mean, you know, we can use food as a language and it does so many things and it can bring communities together. And once we're together breaking bread, we can think about collective uh, problem solving. And it, you know, it allows us to recognize and to connect in ways that are deeper than we would if we hadn't broken bread. And I just think that food does so many things for us that it's also um, a strategy of resistance and resilience as we think about what we want the future of Detroit to look like. Mm. So Mrs. Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer, talked about using food as a strategy to dispossess black folks in Mississippi. And so if food was used as a strategy of oppression and exploitation, Mrs. Hamer then decided to organize Freedom Farm Agricultural Cooperative, which was a way to keep people in the South. So her argument was when you leave the South, everything comes from the land. And leaving the land leaves you dependent upon someone else for everything. And so her belief was, and she was known to say, as long as I have a pig in a garden, no one can tell me what to do. So this idea of food as an instrument of oppression, food as an instrument of resistance and resilience, then I think that there's a lot that can happen when people come together and establish places for us to eat, break bread, and to collectively come up with ideas and strategies for how do we have whole, happy, full lives that were thriving and not just surviving. Yeah. I mean, uh, the changes that are happening in this city, in neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. in in places where Detroiters, black Detroiters for so long were just trying to hang on as everyone else left, as money was sort of pulled back, disinvestment set in and and abandonment. Um, You know, now you've got uh, renewed attention in in some of those places. And uh, there's no question that it feels to a lot of people as though this is this is about changing the city's demographics it is about yeah. making it a white space rather than a black space and uh, f- food plays a role yes. in in those questions yes i mean i am Every time I come home, I am shocked by how much has happened. And while the narrative is there's a new Detroit and the Detroit is is doing better, then I wonder better for whom. And so I recognize that there are efforts like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and Feedem Freedom and other organizations that are really active in making sure that the voices of black Detroiters, and I say generational black Detroiters because we have been here for generations, (laughs) and it uh, it seems like an assault to not have our narratives recognize our voices heard and our stories documented. Yeah. You know, and, and again, there's a duality at work Absolutely. there. This idea that um, we need people to, we need more people to invest in the city. We need more money uh, to do the things that we need to do. At the same time, in neighborhoods like the one where I grew up, that's not happening right. in the same way that it is in places that are quote unquote more desirable uh, and and sort of bridging that gap is one of the real challenges and race of course drives yes. a, an awful lot yep. of those discussions it does and it's painful to see that you know those moneyed interests and political interests are not engaging respectfully in community voices and that is what i would like to see happen yeah. uh, dr white this this idea of forcible uh, sort of food insecurity. Historically, that's one of the things that African-Americans have always faced. There is a very painful history of land dispossession for black folk, right? 
Um, and if we look at the numbers, there's approximately 1.4% of all farmers are African-American and struggling. There is a, you know, there are crises happening today where African-Americans are being dispossessed of their land for a variety of reasons. And uh, Pete Daniel tells the story of the role of the USDA in land dispossession. And these are all conversations that are important for us to have. If the nation was built on the backs of blacks, on the land stolen by, from indigenous communities, then we do owe, we owe, we have an obligation to pay those bills. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had a conversation with one of my neighbors in the neighborhood uh, where I was born a couple of years ago. This is somebody who really desperately wanted us to do better with our own food supply and 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 uh, building gardens and and thinking about how we could address food insecurity. And he said to me, he said, you know, the kids in this neighborhood don't know that food comes out of the ground. They don't have any concept of that because uh, there is no food coming out of the ground here, right? And the stores that are near us don't have fresh food that comes out of the ground. And it just, that 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 statement has stuck with me sure. so strongly over, yeah. the, over the years. It's hard to overstate the the depths of the insufficiency here, the the things that we do not have in neighborhoods that are predominantly African-American. And there's another side to that. I think that's also important to elevate. There are organizations like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network that have Food Warriors Youth Development Programs. I, I don't know of an Urban Act project that doesn't appeal to children. The kids, and so sure. if we recognize how important it is for kids to be involved in these projects, we have to make sure that we support those organizations that are providing these resources and opportunities to children. Mm. And so you don't have to come up with a new project. There's so many projects that are going on in the city that would love to have children come out. And you know, and you can see there is a fundamental shift in how children are outside of the garden space and in the garden space. It's really a tremendous view and vision. I did a vermicomposting workshop for D-Town when I don't like worms. And I had this lecture <laughs> prepared and I was all, and the children, I popped the top on the compost bin. The children, you know, ran to the bin. There goes my lecture. They're doing a worm dance. They're naming worms. I mean, just to see the brightness in their eyes sure. and to have them involved in the project, in these projects and talking to children in, you know, engaging in this kind of way, I think is tremendous. And it's an opportunity that's happening probably right around the corner. It's amazing what you see when you're at adult level mm-hmm. versus when you're at child we're level. At child you're closer level. to the ground. You can see the garden spaces. Just take some time today to recognize and appreciate all the places that we grow in a city like Detroit that is often it's often overlooked. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Monica White, Assistant Professor of Environmental Justice at the University of Wisconsin, also the author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance, and the Black Freedom Movement. Dr. White, it was really great to have you here. This is fun. Thank you so much. I enjoyed myself. 